Again, disclaimer, I said this before, but need to say it again. So Boston is like getting the wind left over from the hurricane from everybody. So it's going to be a, a whooshy one, guys. It's going to be, there's going to be sounds in the background and you're just going to have to deal with it because it's, it's the best I can do for you right now. Yeah. <laughs> All good. I have a cup of pulp in my fridge. It is pulp from... <laughs> First of all, the word it. that you're saying, like, I know that you're saying pulp, but it, even when I'm saying it, it sounds like poop. <laughs> so I'm like... <laughs> I do not have a cup of poop. I have a cup of pulp in my fridge because I decided last week that I wanted to become a paper maker. So I ordered this weird screen contraption off of Amazon and I cut up a bunch of junk mail because that's why I want to do it because I have like stacks and stacks of junk mail that I keep getting that I can't recycle because it has personal like it's like credit card statement not statements but like you know those like credit card offers which yeah. my parents say don't yeah. throw those out without shredding them because then people will open credit cards in your name um which to that I say, anyone who opens a credit card in my name, I already have a lot of debt, so if you want to take it, go ahead. Um, <laughs> but, so anyway, I was like, I'm going to make paper. So yesterday, I soaked a bunch of paper, and I blended it all up, and I tried to start making paper, and it went horribly. And so I read on the internet that you can't just leave your pulp sitting out. You have to, like, refrigerate it. <laughs> So I have a giant cup of pulp. <laughs> I don't know what to do with it because my first attempt at paper went really horribly. Sometimes but you I'll do get things that are like, you do things that are like just strike me as like very Amish. And I feel like you would fit in well in like an Amish community. <laughs> just yes and no. Making your, just making your own paper. <laughs> making paper, eating free carrots off the road um <laughs> just things that i do i don't think did yeah. we talk about that that last time my yes, free carrot i don't think it made it to the no. final recording, our episode was so long i had to cut out i know so i actually listened to it i never listened oh, really? to them and i was how, on a run like and it? i was like i will listen to it i know but all of our banter you miss so many good things <laughs> I know. You just went straight to the facts because I know. The episode was we talked so for like long and two hours. Kept, we talked to, yeah. So, like, our, the opening episode banter was a good 45 minutes. And then the episode itself, without like cutting it, like, was almost an hour and a half. And so I was like, okay, I don't know. Like, either I, it's either going to be way too long or I don't know. But. Well, that, that's yeah. a thing. Leave us a review and let us know if you want to hear us talking more. Do you want more banter more about or less banter? The one time that there was a box of carrots on the side of the road and it said free. And I, I said, okay. And then I ate them. 
I'll keep this in. So now they know that you, <laughs> that you, you have to know about the like, <laughs> that you like s- street food to Rachel is not like a food truck. Street food is food in I'm a box. Forager. <laughs> oh, speaking of food trucks, I'm so excited. I'm going to the drive-in movies on Thursday. So when this airs, I'm going to the cool. drive-in movies. I'm going to see Jurassic Park and there's a bunch of food trucks there. So it's like all yeah, quarantine really cool. fun. It's not an oxymoron like, quarantine fun. It exists. <laughs> um, like the original Jurassic Park? Yeah. Movie? Oh, I've never seen it. It seems scary. I don't know. My, ma- my jaw dropped. Um, <laughs> I saw the one with Chris... What's Pratt. Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt and um, the redhead girl. Yes, I saw that one. Not she very has good, a name. Opinion. Um, that I conveniently forgot is Bryce Dallas Howard. Yeah, she's a uh, Howard's daughter. And I know, like, her name sticks out to me because I remember reading once that her and like her siblings' middle names are the place that they were conceived. Oh, so. I was hoping you weren't gonna say that. <laughs> That's I creepy. mean, fun fact: Dallas, cool place, I guess. Well, at least her <laughs> middle name's not like gas station bathroom oh my god not that there's any judgment there but like that should it'd be a weird middle name anyway i have been doing basically nothing but work and like painting and you're doing a giveaway um Oh, yeah, I'm doing a giveaway. If you guys want to join my art giveaway, find me on Instagram. Good luck. (laughs) I wanted to try to join, but then I was like, if I win, it'll be kind of like favoritism. And I don't want to. No, it's going to be random. I'm just going to like copy and paste everyone who like enters into like an Excel and then do like the random like function. I'll think about it. I was also like, if I really want Natalie's art, I will buy it. And I already own a lot of your art, and so is my family. So I was like, someone else should get the arts. Yeah, you could also just ask, and I'd probably give you whatever you wanted, within reason. (laughs) I would pay you for it, because I'm a good friend. I appreciate that. And you will buy my paper. I will buy your paper. I actually totally would buy your paper. And I, I got, like, alcohol inks that I want to, like, play with, but I need, like, nice, cute paper for it. Um, well. So if your paper's hard enough. The paper that I currently have looks like something that my cat threw up, so I yeah. will let you know. I think I need to blend it more. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of looks like the, um, I don't know, like, I guess maybe that's what you do in, like, art class when they, like, make you, like, mash up a bunch of paper and then sculpt something with it looks like that from what i saw yeah a little bit um yeah i think i just need to blend it more and because i was like blending it a little bit and then pulp was flying everywhere and i was like i don't feel like cleaning this up right now so i'll get to it yeah good luck i am excited to see how that turns out do you hear this wind yeah it's kind of it is i i do see what you say it is kind of calming sounding it's like white noise a little bit for me um but it's like hopefully it sounds that way to our listeners otherwise it's just gonna be kind of annoying but you know what all four of you can deal (laughs) we're almost we're over we're over 900 listens by the way so we 
we have more than four listeners hi guys <laughs> it is it is beyond i don't even know if evan's mom is still listening i feel like she really? would have like texted me and been like in response to some of the things that i've said on the, po- the past few podcasts but oh yeah um well my mom and my little sister too i like told them to listen and i think they've collectively listened to like a few and then i will mention in conversation how i just did like this case or x y or z and they're like oh you're still doing that there's more episodes (laughs) they thought it was a face (laughs) yeah every week yeah we're in season two technically hey um, the longer this goes on, just the more dedicated I feel like I'm getting to it. Yeah, and I think it's fun. And also, like, as it's just kind of a cool way for me and you to just chat, like, for, like, an hour or so a week, which is nice. Um, I know Brooke and her husband have started listening. Hey, guys. <laughs> hey. And I, I'm pretty sure Emily listens um, uh, as background noise. Hi, Emily. <laughs> Congratulations, Emily. Oh yeah, on getting into school soon. You go, girl. Become that doctor, um, and Mora, if you're listening. You too. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Everyone. But everyone's moving on with their lives. Your graduate we degrees. Just have a podcast. <laughs> you have one. You're cool. You're in the club. Uh, only one. I'm just only kidding. One. Every time I think about getting my PhD, I die a little inside. So it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> No, I but totally... I will say, if everyone gets a PhD and I'm the only one that ha- doesn't have one, I might feel a little left out. I mean, you could do um, what uh, John did and just get like a doctorate online. Like, I think his is in like leadership, so do that. <laughs> I was just going to say something. Oh yeah, I um I plan on getting like an honorary PhD after all of my lifelong accomplishments and becoming super famous i just like a university to give me a phd and i just have to stand up at graduation and wear a dumb hat and wave to everybody so if any universities out there are interested in honoring me for my work on this podcast i'll become like a dean of some sort of department or something and i'll just you know i'll do what i can (laughs) thanks thanks for for looking out for a friend you are um, well, yeah, outside of the pulp and the drive-in movie, I really don't have too much going on in my life that's worth talking about. I'm just tired of this heat. Yeah, I hope it cools that's down all. for you soon. Thank you. Well, I'm hoping um, on this friggin' wind. <laughs> um, on a random note, I have became, I have become... A first-time plant owner, and it's like really <gasps> scary. But congratulations! What kind of plant? I specifically went in and I was like, "What can I like not kill?" And so were they um, not just like plastic? Here's a plastic plant. <laughs> no, I, so I went specifically to. It's called the Plant Garage in Denver. Oh, um, cool. and it like it's super cool place, and they're um, the owners. It seems to be like locally owned, and um, I think one of the owners might have helped me. I'm not sure. But we got a snake plant, which you can't kill, apparently. And we got a peace lily, I think which I have is also apparently very difficult to kill. <laughs> we also apparently have very poor light exposure, so we needed things that we couldn't kill. We're, we have a north-facing home, or our windows are north-facing. So Interesting. Sucks. I got a um, money tree 
that they What's said that? it's impossible to kill. And guess what? I killed it. Um, <laughs> I just killed. I had um, a succulent that I got not this past Christmas, but the Christmas before. So I it lived for over a year, and then I it finally I killed it on accident, and I felt so bad because I had oh, invested so much into this plant. But I have a few that are going strong, so I believe I have an aloe plant that I did almost kill. It was like brown for and mushy for a while, but it came back. It came back, um, and then I have some succulents. Um, one of my succulents I got, I bought it, and then. I bought it at a CVS and then I was walking back into work with my friend and then we got stuck on an elevator and then um so the elevator was stuck and we were it it like fell like scary oh, like amusement God. ride falling <laughs> that's horrible and I and there was like 10 people in the elevator like not so much and this is like a a new building like and there wasn't enough people that it should have like triggered anything but so we were all just like in this elevator and me with my new plant. And so they <laughs> finally got the doors open. And it was one of those situations where like we had to jump down off the elevator because it was suspended. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm pretty sure like literally for the past hour, they were telling us not to leave the elevator because of safety reasons. Because to me, I'm like, okay. Who's to say this elevator isn't going to stop and chop my body in half? Yeah, while you're... When I'm jumping off of it. So I jumped off of it anyway. um, And my plant fell onto the ground. But now it's still alive. And I will always remember the time that I got stuck in an elevator. Hello everyone and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc, etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. Um, let's get into today's episode. Um, yes. We are. So the topic, so the general topic, which is what got us to these two cases, was um, cases in which uh, the defense of not guilty by reason of insanity was used. Um, I think, and I don't know if you have a warning or anything in yours, um, but given the case that Rachel chose and the the case that I chose, um, both cases actually do uh, deal a lot with domestic violence. And so this is just like a disclaimer and a warning. Um, If this is something that you don't want to listen to, please don't. Um, And also, as always, and I think we give it at the beginning or the end of the episode, um, you can reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. So almost everyone, true crime fans or not, has heard the name Lorena Bobbitt. In the 1990s, Lorena's name was plastered across every tabloid. 
Her name became the subject of many jokes, uh, but this really missed the point. Her story is much, much darker than was originally portrayed. Uh, behind this is a story of a young immigrant who was raped night after night by her own husband. I think it can be easy to kind of laugh this case off ignore and ignore the deeper struggle faced by Lorena Bobbitt. It's easier to make a penis joke than it is to sit through the thought that someone suffered for so long and it's easier to laugh at this story than it is to imagine what might push a peaceful person to feel like violence is their only way out. So for many years, Lorena tried to stay out of the spotlight. Her story circulated the media at a time where people weren't as educated about the issues. This was long before the Me Too movement, back when we weren't as equipped to discuss domestic violence. Um, so going into this story, I pulled from some older articles as well as some newer articles. Um, so somewhat recently, I believe it was 2019 or 2018, Jordan Peele actually produced a four-part documentary. Um, it's on Amazon Prime Video. I believe I actually watched it like a year ago. It was really good, really interesting. But that kind of reopened the discussion about her case and you know approaching it from this new perspective that we have of being more aware and more sensitive to approaching this topic it's not perfect yet you know i think that we still have a lot to learn as far as especially you know in the media about how to approach these kinds of cases but at the very least it's it's much better off than when this first started going around um, so a little bit of a backstory. Lorena Galwa was 19 years old when she met John Wayne Bobbitt. She was working as a manicurist and had a visa that was about to expire. She's 5'2 and just under 100 pounds, so a really small person. Lorena's upbringing was quite strict about relationships. Dates required chaperones and divorce and abortion were not an option. John thought Lorena's accent was cute and he wanted her to stick around. Um, so they got married on June 18th of 1989. The honeymoon phase didn't last long for these two. John was a heavy drinker and spent money recklessly. One month into their marriage, Lorena criticized John for his erratic driving. He hit her. Another night, over an argument about a television program, John broke the antenna off their home, struck Lorena with his car, and drove off, leaving Lorena to pick up the pieces. In another fight, Lorena locked herself in the bathroom. John unscrewed the doorknob. She tried to call 911. John ripped the phone out of the wall. Neighbors would notice when Lorena would walk out of the home covered in bruises. She stole money from her employer and would steal dresses from Nordstrom because she didn't have any money because of John's erratic spending. Lorena and John separated twice, once in 1991 and again in 1992. The police were called to the Bobbitt residence by both John and Lorena to break up fights on multiple occasions, and in mid-June of 1993, Lorena requested a restraining order against John. On the night of June 23, 1993, Lorena says that John raped her. She said her husband tried to have sex with her. She resisted his advances, which resulted in him pushing her and holding her hands down as he raped her. In the past, she said John had told her um, that for sex, it excites him. And this was something that he had told his friends as well. After he went to sleep, Lorena took a kitchen knife and cut off his penis. She got in her car and drove about 15 minutes away, throwing it out of the window. 
she was on her way to the nail salon where she worked, which was a safe haven for her, a place that she would go to to just sleep on the floor sometimes when things just got too bad at home. Later, when asked why she threw it out the window, Lorena said it was difficult to drive while she was holding on to something. So, John says that he didn't have sex with Lorena that night. Um, another source I, I read said that he wasn't sure whether or not he had sex with Lorena that night, um, but that he was bar hopping with a friend, came home exhausted, went straight to bed, and the next thing he recalled was the pain of having his penis cut off. Um, so, Robert Johnson, John's friend, who was actually staying in the home with them in the next room over, um, was awoken by John, kicking him awake, and calmly asking him to bring him to the emergency room. So um, he was informed that at the emergency room that they would be able to do much without the missing organ besides just sewing him up. Um, understandably so. He was pretty frustrated to get that news. So um, Lorena had also gone to the hospital and had, was going through the process of getting a rape kit after she was finished doing that um, sometime around 4.30 a.m. The police had asked her where the penis was located and had ended up searching through a grassy area to find the missing organ. So Lorena told them where it was located, sharing, you know, she wasn't a vindictive person. If she was truly trying to be awful, she would have just not said anything about it at all. Um, and so this case, obviously, I want to approach it with a very serious uh, perspective, but this part is just kind of funny. So they eventually found the penis and put it on ice in a big bite hot dog box from a nearby 7-Eleven. I'm just like... I don't want to laugh, but... <laughs> I'm sorry. But you couldn't have found something else to put it on? Like, you didn't have a cooler or, like, a plastic bag? Yeah. Or, like, you couldn't have planned better, like... You knew you were going out there to look for it. I don't know. I just, you would, like, literally anything, like, if you were going to get something from 7-Eleven, I'm sure that there was, like, other sorts of containers that were not, like. (laughs) Yeah. That's just comedic. I, that part is is also hilarious but the case overall terrible it's terrible i had to try so hard not to laugh while seeing that um but anyway so they put the wiener in a hot dog box and they rushed it to the hospital john underwent a nine and a half hour surgery to have it reattached and restored to almost full function so john was charged with marital rape following the events of june 23rd although lorena said that she'd been raped many times throughout her marriage this charge only applied to the alleged rape that occurred the night of june 23rd the jury consisted of nine women and three men during the trial john was accompanied by his aunt who championed john's innocence lorena only attended the first two days of the trial and was not present for the reading of the verdict During the trial, John's lawyer, Gregory Murphy, said it was distressful that Lorena had the support of many women's groups. The article that I pulled this from was from the Washington Post in 1993, shows that it's dated when it says that Murphy did not not believe she seemed like a battered woman. So a little bit of a history about battered women, which like, first of all, 
like what number one what does a battered woman look like and two exactly. i'm really glad that you're going down in this i also um have some um battered woman stuff to discuss in my case as well but that just what does a battered woman look like please i don't know Well, and that's <sighs> that's the issue is that people expect like first of all what is like the proper way for anyone to react to anything ever but i think that people expect battered women to be like hysterical and like sobbing and like remembering all the details of a case when when you learn more about how trauma affects the brain and affects memory you're not going to see things that way and also you know trauma may cause someone to appear more stoic or unemotional and some people might mistake that for oh they don't care this didn't actually happen um there's no one way that someone could look especially so battered women syndrome uh was a commonly used legal defense in the 1990s as a result of multiple murder cases in england where women had killed their violent partners so it's not a defense in itself but may legally constitute as self-defense uh provocation 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 um, in, provocation i know i'm bad at pronouncing words um insanity defense or diminished responsibility so disclaimer i am not a lawyer but from what i can gather this became a term to describe how people experiencing domestic violence can feel so afraid um that they feel that killing the the violent person is the only way that they can get out of this situation um so um at and just from experience and things that i've read um the time that someone is most at risk is when they try to leave their partner so i think that it's perfect you know when people are like oh why didn't they just leave it's like okay well that's when people are at their greatest risk of being harmed in some way um and so there's a few issues that i have with this terminology uh one it focuses only on women and does not recognize that men or non-binary folks can experience domestic violence as well um two it does not use person first language so currently in the field we focus on using person first language um so you would say a person has experienced domestic violence rather than calling them a battered person because we recognize that what has happened to them is not their entire experience and does not describe who they are as a person. So it's especially important when you're discussing mental health. So, you know, saying someone is experiencing depression rather than saying a depressed person. Um, so, like I said, we're, we're just more than what has happened to us and we're more than our mental illnesses. It's not the only influence of, of what makes us who we are. Um, and so battered women syndrome is not included in the DSM-5. So that's like the holy grail for um, psychological disorders. But it is classified in the International Classification of Diseases, um, so the ICD-9, which is a diagnostic tool maintained by the World Health Organization. Um, so psychologists, counselors, and social workers mainly use the DSM to classify diagnoses, but the ICD-9 is more commonly used in medical settings and may be used by mental health professionals for insurance purposes. So it is possible that this is still being used out there to this day. Um, in my opinion, battered person syndrome shares many similarities with a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. 
Um, and I believe nowadays it would be more accurate to, to use that term. However, the main reason, oh, go ahead. And um, it's considered a subcategory of post-traumatic stress disorder um, in terms of diagnoses. And so I think in terms of symptoms, they share like three or four right. um, symptomat- sim- symptomatology, whatever. <laughs> symptomology is fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah, so basically the main reason for using BPS is to explain why someone might kill another person if they are not at immediate risk, but it would still fall into the realm of self-defense. So people experiencing domestic violence can feel like they're always at risk for harm, whether or not, you know, someone literally has a gun to their head or a knife to their throat. Um, So that's why this exists and, you know, it'll play a role in in both our cases, I'm sure, later on. So yeah, like we were saying, there's no guidebook for how someone who is experiencing abuse, uh, how they should act or look. Uh, Also, Murphy said that he looked forward to the day that Lorena was no longer a lexicon of the women's movement, which like, okay, relax. And what's your deal, man? Like, since when are you the gatekeeper for (laughs) like who gets to, I'm pretty sure women get to pick that. Uh, the yeah. women's movement gets to decide. I'm like, I don't who... think the women's movement asked you. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. So during the trial, Murphy painted Lorena as a jealous, frustrated wife who saw her marriage falling apart and panicked. After the event, she told the police that her husband always orgasmed first, so that's why she cut his penis off. John didn't even remember whether or not he had sex that night and he would sometimes occasionally have sex in his sleep that was a thing that happened so who knows maybe yeah but in this case i don't think to me it sounded like he would get really intoxicated and that's what it sounds like engage in sex i don't think that this at all sounds like a case of sexomnia which is like a real thing and is yeah that's its own thing but to me it sounded like he would get blackout and have sex and not remember it happening so the commonwealth's attorney paul b ebert told the story of an insensitive husband who kept a list of the women he slept with to taunt lorena he said that lorena had been experiencing abuse and believed that something happened to just push her over the edge he claimed that um, if she was merely jealous she would have slit his throat However, she chose to attack the thing that hurt her, um, which I think Freud would have a field day with this explanation. I think that... But it's Freud, so... <laughs> is, that's totally up Freud's alley. But it, I mean, it is interesting to consider why she did that instead of just killing him. Um, so... I mean, and there's, like, fear that plays a role in that. Maybe she was too afraid to kill him. Or she seemed like a really nice, shy, quiet person. So maybe she didn't want to kill him and she just wanted to do whatever she could to protect herself. Um, So John could have been sentenced to 20 years in prison if found guilty. The jurors were initially split when making their decision. They feared the message the verdict might send to women across the country who were experiencing abuse and didn't want to discourage people from coming forward and sharing their stories. Supposedly, two female jurors held out the longest before casting their vote. But in the end, the decision was made, and there was not enough physical evidence to convict. 
there were and there were some discrepancies in Lorena's testimony, which it would be interesting to know what those discrepancies were because like I was saying earlier, when people who have experienced trauma are kind of like recounting what happened, the way that your brain stores the memories is different. Um, So it is super possible that there could have been discrepancies for that reason, because someone in a state of terror, their brain's not properly functioning. Um, It's just trying, it's in survival mode. Um, Not just that, I... I sorry. I wanted to add. So okay. I listened to um, uh, Brene Brown's podcast. I've just like started, and she has an episode with Tarana Burke, who is the um, like the founder of, I believe, the Me Too movement. Um, like I guess decades ago is when she founded it, and she really describes. So she's a survivor of um, abuse and like sexual assault herself, and. They were talking about um, why the like Supreme Court hearings, um, the confirmation hearings, and whether or not Kavanaugh um, did sexually assault. And I'm blinking on her name, but the woman who came forward, Christine um, something. Yeah, and she said, like she said that one of her biggest points of frustration was that everyone was like she's being inconsistent her story is inconsistent she's not remembering um and everyone's like if it if it really happened why wouldn't she remember every detail since it was so horrifying and tarana explains it being a survivor herself is that for herself once the assault happened once she experienced the trauma that she experienced she then spent forever trying to forget it trying to put it behind her trying to move forward and not think about it and so they're like you spend you know it's it's even in the case of like chronic um assault like you spend time trying to forget the small details just to make it through today um and so when it is time to ask these survivors or you know the or when it is time for these survivors to come forward and speak their truth there are details that they aren't going to remember well, also the way I know there's been changes in the way that interviews are done of, of um, survivors of sexual violence or um, any type of trauma. You know, it used to be before that and it still might be this way in, in some cases um, where people are interviewed over and over and over again immediately after their trauma has occurred. So in one interview, you know, they might remember this one thing and say it this way. In another one, you know, they might, you know, tell the order of something slightly differently because when they're being interviewed immediately after their trauma happens by multiple strangers, you know, having to talk about probably the scariest moment of their life on the hardest day of their life, um, it's just not going to it's just a recipe for disaster just having to tell your story over and over again um it makes me think of did you watch uh unbelievable on netflix no but it's a movie it's a series um it's a short series but it's based on a true story and it tells uh the story of this young girl i believe she was maybe 17 or 18 at the time that she someone broke into her home and sexually assaulted her i recommend so it's unbelievable the netflix series there's also a book unbelievable which was a great read as well but it really gave me a lot of information about what it's like to be a victim and have to go through that process and um just a great story 
uh, I mean, not great story, but in the end, you know, what was learned from it, they caught the guy. Um, it's just, it was very eye-opening. Um, so John could have been sentenced to 20 years in prison if he was found guilty. The jurors were initially split. The last two holdouts were these female jurors, but in the end, the decision was made because there was not enough physical evidence to convict. There were discrepancies in Lorena's testimony, and one juror said that if someone had heard a scream or there were visible bruises, that they might have had a reason to convict, but because none of that evidence existed, um, they, they just didn't feel like they had enough. So he was found not guilty when the verdict was read. John was grinning from ear to ear, hugged his attorneys. His aunt, who, who was the one who raised him, stood up and exclaimed, oh, yes. So even though he was found innocent, and Paul Ebert actually said this later in an interview, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Um, just like rape can occur without there being bruises or any you know, kind of physical trauma, you know, you might be so terrified that you don't even make a sound. Um, so Lorena's trial was planned later that year in the same courthouse, and she was to be charged with malicious wounding. Um, so the public waited for the next trial, and Howard Stern, the famous shock jock radio guy, uh, put John on a telethon to raise money to cover his legal and medical expenses. Jesus. I hate this guy so much. So that's not even the worst part. So he all, Howard Stern also said, I don't even buy that he was raping her. She's not that great looking. Mm. <sighs> Which, like, what is wrong with you? You're not that great looking. Um. <laughs> I'm speechless. I don't know. Okay. So it wasn't only him, you know, a bunch of other late night talk show hosts were eating this up, making jokes left and right. Um, And so Lorena's trial was equally as crazy and drew all sorts of media attention to the courthouse. People people were selling Love Hurts t-shirts and penis-shaped candy um, outside in, in the crowd, which shame on you. There are real people this is their real life. And whether or not John was a bad person or like what your feelings are, that's just horrible. It's just so horrible. I can't. So during Lorena's trial, they covered much of Lorena and John's past that I went over earlier. Um, and during cross examination, Assistant Commonwealth's District Attorney, Mary Grace O'Brien, quoted Lorena's initial statement to the police where she said she cut John's penis off because he orgasmed first. Um, I don't know why she said that and she didn't really offer an explanation, but apparently that was on the books. Um, But under oath, Lorena said she didn't remember cutting off John's penis and only realized it as she was driving away with it in her hand. Um, So a defense psychiatrist testified that Lorena had experienced a brief reactive psychosis and she cut his penis off um, because this was a thing that was bringing her so much pain. So kind of a Freudian explanation. A psychiatrist for the prosecution argued that Lorena was sound in mind and she made the choice to, to do this. But after six hours of deliberation, the jury found Lorena not guilty by reason of insanity. She went to the state psychiatric hospital for five weeks, um, for examination after she was released. And John decided to go on a press tour following the trial titled Love Hurts. On May 6, 1994, 
Oh, that was a day before my birthday. A day before I joined this world. Um, <laughs> he was arrested for throwing his fiance, Christina Elliott, against a wall. He pled not guilty, and while on bail, proclaimed everything was working great down there. So no worries. Later in June, John was in court again, this time for a paternity suit. He pled guilty and reached a settlement with Patrice, Patrice L. Williams and shared that he was excited and blessed to be the father of his 17-month-old son. Two months later, John was convicted of a misdemeanor against Christina Elliott and was ordered to complete therapy and join Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, later that year, John starred in a pornographic film titled John Wayne Bobbitt Uncut. Which, okay. John Wayne Bobbitt is a rabbit hole in himself. And there was many more pornos and penisy type things that I'm just not going to get into because this isn't about him and he's kind of a bad person. Um, but feel free to look it up if you want. I'm just going to end that there. Um, so Lorena did some press after the trial as well, but not as much as John. And she was offered $1 million to pose for Playboy after the trial. Um, but she said no. She said, I wasn't raised that way. It would be great if I could do that and get that money, but I'm, I'm not going to do it. Which, to me, you know, speaks a lot to her character. I think it goes to show that she's, you know, not just doing this for the attention. Because I think a lot of people, whether or not they experienced all this and probably had legal fees and, you know, a difficult time finding a job, if Playboy offered them a million dollars to post, they would probably say yes. Yeah. I, I wouldn't, mean... though. <laughs> what? I wouldn't. Oh, you said I would. <laughs> oh, Rachel. No. Okay, I have loans, but I'm not, no. No. Yeah, I mean, I respect anyone's choice, regardless of what it is. True. You have a right to make your own decisions. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. It does speak to, um, it's not like she, it's not like some weird sensationalized, or she's she didn't fall down the sensationalized kind of, like, fame of it. Um, yeah. Like, that's not so necessarily man. what she was looking for. It was a traumatic experience for her, and... You know, while the other party in this case decided to profit, she um, hopefully got, you know, the resources and the help that she needed to move on with her life. Yeah, actually, I have a few more things to share. So she prefers to go by Lorena Gallo now. She still lives in Virginia with her um, daughter, who I think probably now is like teenage age, and her partner of 20 years that she met when she was attending community college. She now runs the Lorena Gallo Foundation, which focuses on domestic abuse issues. She tours colleges and talks to sororities about red flags in relationships, things that they should look out for, and ways to protect themselves. And she also volunteers in shelters for survivors of domestic violence. In a 2018 interview with Time Magazine, Lorena showed she was happy to see that there is more awareness around domestic violence. Um, obviously, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, but overall, you know, it it's definitely good to see that things have changed since her case and, and appear to be changing for the better. My case is kind of similar to the Lorena Bobbitt case, um, but it took place almost 20 years earlier. Um, so I am doing the case of Francine Hughes. Francine Hughes was born on August 17th, 1971 in Stockbridge, in Stockbridge, Michigan. Francine's father worked on a farm and is reported to have been an alcoholic and abusive. 
When Francine was 16 years old, she fell for a guy named James Hughes, nicknamed Mickey. Young and in love, she dropped out of school at 16 and married Mickey. This was sometime around 1963. Together, Francine and Mickey had four children. Over the next eight years, Francine and Mickey remained married. Shortly after getting married, Francine would later explain that Mickey became abusive in a way that she had not experienced before when they were dating. Uh, She described coming home one day after shopping. She was wearing new clothes. Mickey seemingly became enraged and ripped the clothes right off of Francine's body. She said, I don't know whether I look too pretty or what, but he didn't want me to look that way. Following the... Following the pattern that many abusers take, Mickey expressed remorse to Francine for what he did. But soon, Francine realized that the abuse and remorse followed by more abuse and more remorse cycle was her new way of life. In addition to this physical and emotional abuse, Francine explained experiencing financial abuse at the hands of Mickey. Despite having four children together, Mickey monopolized their money and spent spent much needed funds on alcohol. In 1971, Francine had had enough. She didn't know what to do, but she knew she needed help. She spoke with a social worker, shout out to all of the social workers out there, um, and decided that she needed to file file for divorce from her husband. Unsurprisingly, Mickey did not want a divorce, nor did he take the filing seriously. When the divorce was finalized that same year, Mickey and Francine were no longer living under the same roof. Uh, But that did not stop Mickey from coming and going as he pleased to Francine's home. Not only that, on these random visits and drop-ins, he would sometimes beat Francine, just because. Uh, So, unfortunately, the divorce did not help Francine escape the hell that she had been living. This continued for weeks following the divorce, until one day Mickey got into a serious car accident, which caused really serious injuries, and he was unable to live on his own. Francine felt sorry for him as he had nowhere to go and no one to help him during his recovery. And he was, after all, the the father of her four children. So she felt like she had no choice but to move him into her home and help nurse him back to health. That's horrible. Yeah. And so after Mickey recovered, was he grateful? Was he remorseful for his despicable treatment of Francine for so many years? And the fact that she, despite all of that, she took time out of her life to care for him in his moment of need? No, no, he was not. Instead, he set up permanent domicile in her home and the abuse not only continued, it got worse. Six years had gone by since their divorce was finalized and the pattern continued. In March of 1977, Francine decided she wanted to pursue a career as a secretary, and her mom helped her to get into secretarial school. On March 9th, Mickey found out about this and lost it. He demanded that she drop out from secretarial school and threatened to destroy her car if she did not comply. If that wasn't enough, he even forced her to burn to burn her books in front of him. Francine was terrified for her safety, so she called the local police department. Officers arrived on the scene and Francine explained everything that had happened and expressed that she was in fear for her life. She begged them to arrest Mickey or at least make him leave. But these particular officers said that because they did not they did not personally witness the abuse themselves, that there was nothing that they could do. Is that for real? Yeah. It's important to note that Mickey not only threatened the police officers, but in the presence of the same police officers, he said, quote, it was all over, end quote, for Francine, since she had the audacity to call for help. Oh, but, my God. alas, none of that was enough abuse to motivate these officers to arrest Mickey. The officers left. 
Mickey made good on his promise and continued to beat and rape Francine that night. He then went to he he then went to his bed and went to sleep. That night was the final final straw for Francine. She would later describe what she was thinking in those moments, saying, quote, I was thinking all of, sorry, I was thinking about all the things that had happened to me, all the times he had hurt me, how he had hurt the kids. I stood still for a moment, hesitating, and a voice urged me on. It whispered, do it, do it, do it. Hurt, Francine grabbed all four of her children and quickly put them in the car. She went back into the house and poured gasoline all around the all around Mickey's bed while he slept. She then lit a match and threw it onto the poured gasoline and returned to her children. As the house burned with her ex-husband inside, Francine got into her car and drove directly to the Ingham County Jail and turned herself in for the arson and murder of Mickey. By the time the firefighters got there, Mickey was already dead, presumed um, from smoke inhalation. The same police who couldn't arrest Mickey for abuse or terroristic threats earlier that day then arrested Francine and charged her for murder. That's insane that it happened so quickly that it was like, oh, he says he's going to kill me. You say, no, we're leaving. Bye. And then he tried to kill me. So then I burned the house down. (laughs) I mean, that's like the horrifying part. She literally called for help. She begged these people to get this man away from her. And he literally said it's all over for her. And like he, you know, did exactly what he said he was going to do and then passed out drunk. And it's like I called for help. Help didn't help me. Like, what else do I do? You know? Um, and for all of this yeah, you're to like be happening. Yeah. And for all of this to be happening in front of her four children, um, I I don't even know the mental toll that something like that, like, can take on a person. Um, uh, but yeah, so she was arrested um, and charged for uh, the murder of Mickey. Francine's trial for murder was held in Lansing, in Lansing, Michigan. Francine and the defense and the defense told the more than a decade-long story of abuse that Francine had lived. She explained what she was experiencing the day of the fire. As news of Francine's crime spread, feminist organizations rallied around, around her. Francine's trial was one of the first in which the battered woman syndrome, now known as battered person syndrome, was used um, as a uh, as a defense successfully in the United States. Um, uh, kind of giving similar background to what uh, Rachel gave, um, it was originally conceptualized and coined by Lenore Walker, who is a psychologist, and it basically refers to the patterns of signs and symptoms displayed by a woman or a person who has suffered chronic interpersonal violence or IPV. Um, it's closely associated with post-traumatic stress disorder and can also actually um, has some similarities to um or can also be seen in conjunction sometimes with Stockholm syndrome. Um, and just like Rachel said, while itself, it's not a legal defense. It can be used to legally um, constitute why self-defense took place provo- or um, provocation, insanity or diminished responsibility. And so in the end, a jury of 10 women and two men found Francine not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. Following the trial, Francine remarried, became Francine Wilson, and she became a nurse for the elderly and also taught nursing students. Her story was made into a book. Yeah. 
Her story was made into a book and a film called The Burning Bed. In the film adaptation, she was played by Farrah Fawcett. And the song Independence Day, which is sung by um, the singer Martina McBride, is also about Francine's story. Um, on March 22nd, 2017, Francine passed away at the age of 69 years old. Um, so I added a bit here. So Francine's case is a horrifying one, but it's not an unfamiliar one. Um, I did a little digging into just, I don't know, some history of like domestic violence and just found some interesting things that I wanted to add. Um, so at the time that all of this happened, that all of this was happening in Francine's life, um, feminist activists had already been working tirelessly to bring attention to domestic violence and the toll it takes on the abused. Uh, one of the biggest reasons for the feminist movement's support of temperance, um, which is basically making alcohol illegal for consumption, was because they they felt that drunken men were more likely to abuse their wives and children. Um, That may or may not be true, but in a lot of cases you do see um, that um, women's abusers in marriage are often drunk at the time, Um, but I'm not going to say alcohol is what increases someone's capacity to uh, be violent. Um, And what's more, many states... uh, Wait, I have a fun fact. Um, In Mm -hmm. high school we had to write like this giant like 10 or 15 page research paper about like a historical event and i did the prohibition so i'm an expert on everything that's ever happened obviously but but i remember like as a little high schooler when i was going through and researching this that was the exactly is women who were trying to get protection um that is the the main reason for why the prohibition came about so maybe if um, people didn't be mean to their wives and hurt them, then you would have had been prohibition. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so what's more is that many states had a widely accepted policy of chastisement, which was basically the right for men to physically punish their wives. Um, and basically the law, like the, just, the, the justification that these men, I guess, had or gave themselves was that their wives were deemed by law to be legally subord- subordinate to them. So punishing them was fully within their right, um, which it's not the case. Don't hit people, people. Um, don't emotionally abuse people. Don't financially abuse people. Don't abuse people. Um and well, so today in, there are okay sorry um i was gonna say in no, my case i had a little blurb about this but i think re-recording i didn't mention it but marital rape wasn't a thing during these times um yeah and i think so by my case in the 1990s was when it had finally become illegal in all 50 states so it is possible that some more progressive states um had had that been illegal for a long time but people didn't view rape like rape just couldn't couldn't happen between a man and his wife um so the viewpoints on that have have changed but that was what was the thing like it was okay to be your wife it was okay to rape your wife not cool absolutely insane in my opinion but patriarchy i guess um so today there are more laws in place aimed at protecting victims of interpersonal violence, but they are are hardly enough and do little to prevent the violence in the first place. 
researchers and advocacy groups have been and are continuing to work towards um, better understanding the impacts of IPV and how to prevent it and developing resources to help victims. Um, and so just one final time, um, National Domestic Violence Hotline is available if anyone needs it. Um, the number is probably going to be again at the end of our episode. So that is the case of Francine Hughes, or I will say Francine Wilson. Um, but yeah. Wow. Some heavy cases today. But I think it sparked some interesting discussion about, and um, hopefully, hopefully you learned something listening to this and there's something that you can take away. Um, and yeah, definitely feel free to reach out to, to that number if if you're experiencing that. I really hope you aren't. That's so sad. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.